Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John and I talked about day three of his cross of Robert Durst. On today's episode, we discuss day four of that cross. That's coming up right after the break. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. We begin today's episode by looking at Lewin's questioning of Durst about his actions after he determined that his wife Kathy was missing, specifically his decision to call the police before checking in with Kathy's family. We will occasionally illustrate sections of this discussion and others throughout the episode with abbreviated excerpts of Lewin's Cross of Durst as we presented it in Season 2, Episode 24 of Jury Duty. So, day four of your cross-examination of the dearly departed Robert Durst, one of the questions you asked him early in that day was, Mr. Durst, isn't it true that you called the precinct to report Kathy missing before you called her family members to find out if they had heard from her? I called the precinct to find out how to report a missing person. How did you know that? And what do you remember of Bob's response? Well, we had phone records that showed that Bob called Gilberta, which by the way, he didn't remember. That's why I specifically said family. Bob called Gilberta and then he called the precinct. And after he called the precinct, he called, I think, Jimmy and Mary. And so, obviously, if you're looking for your missing wife, right, and you think she's with her family, then before you call the cops, you're going to call the family. So the idea that basically he makes a token call to Gilberta and then immediately calls the cops without calling the family, when he would later say, hey, I thought she might have been with her family, really demonstrated that he knew where she was. She was in pieces somewhere, and she wasn't coming back. Right. And then you asked him, But Mr. Durst, wouldn't the first thing you would do before you call the police, wouldn't the first thing you would do is you would call Kathy's family, her mom, her sisters, her brother, and find out, hey, listen, has anybody seen Kathy? Isn't that what a normal person does? Well, I'm not a normal person. I am told that I'm somewhere on the autistic spectrum. I don't know what a normal person does. It seemed to me 
what I wanted to do was find out how to report a missing person. So was it your intention whenever you could to try to throw out that I've got autism thing whenever you had a chance? Did that just organically come up in your answer? Or was that an intentional move on your part to try and make the argument to this jury that somehow you're going to blame a condition that millions of people suffer with to explain your behavior? Is that what you're doing? You asked me what a normal person does. I am told I am autistic and not normal. Yes, I remember that. So by this time, obviously, I knew he was their last witness. I knew they weren't calling an expert. I wanted them to call an expert because I would have torn him up and I would have enjoyed it. But so him trying to sneak it in there that he had had Asperger's or was on the spectrum, which is what he was trying to do. That's what he did in Galveston, remember. He was all set to call. They were going to call out Schuler, And then Bob was able to testify to it on direct without objection. They decided not to call out Schuler. Now, the difference was that in this case, they had made a big deal about it. They had not done anything to support it. So Bob getting up and saying, well, I'm on the spectrum, even though he's not allowed to say it, I wasn't worried about it. It also put me in a position to be able to bring in, and yet again, another mess up by the defense. They had stipulated to the admission of the Durst Obesity Center. That was a stipulation. I was going to battle to get that in. So Bob, while he's in jail in Galveston, is doodling, and he makes up this horrifically cruel, he calls it the Durst Obesity Center, and it is one of the cruelest things you've ever seen. It, it's modeled, basically, it gives Tom and Tom's wife's address and basically says they operate this obesity center with their obese children, and they give their names. And it's got all kinds of testimonials. You know, uh, one was like, um, you know, people always told me I was fat, but the Durst Obesity Center taught me that I'm not fat, they're too skinny, and they're jealous of who I am. And there were different courses. One was eat and drink the way of the sumo. I mean, it was all kinds of stuff. It was actually very creative, horrifically cruel. And the reason I wanted in is because it's extremely sarcastic. And anybody who knows anybody who's on the spectrum, sarcasm is a highly developed skill. People on the spectrum with Asperger's, which is what Bob was saying that he had, they have issues relating to people, understanding boundaries, understanding personal space. In other words, there's no way that you're going to have someone on the spectrum with the kind of dry, sarcastic sense of humor Bob has. You don't have that with people on the spectrum. And so my plan was, when they put their expert on, I was going to say, well, listen, I want you to take a look at this. I want you to assume that this was written by, by Bob Durst. Would you agree? First, I would have set him up with what are, you know, the issues, personal space, and not understanding how to relate to people. People like that have problems often communicating. They don't get subtle cues. You know, they're not going to have an advanced sense of humor, you know, sarcasm. I was going to set him up. And then once he was set up, I was going to hit him with the Durst Obesity Center. So when they decided not to call Altshuler, it made it more difficult. But I got a stipulation 
Now, you can look how long the stipulation is. Did they read every part of it? They should have. I don't know. They certainly never said, well, we're not agreeable to have Jurisdiction VC Center come in. So I had a big advantage in bringing that up. And when I brought it up, the judge's first instinct was, you, you can't bring this in. And I'm like, judge, table already, it's in evidence. So, oh, okay. So that's why I was able to read it, because it was already in evidence. So, again, that was important, and it's still relevant, because Bob is up there saying he's on the spectrum. So that was the whole issue of, you know, Bob trying to sneak in, I'm on the spectrum, and why I wasn't worried about it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the next part of our conversation, John and I discuss his cross-examination of Durst about the so-called dig note, which we discussed briefly in episode 24 of this season. As I mentioned earlier, we will occasionally illustrate sections of this discussion and others throughout the episode with abbreviated excerpts of Lewin's Cross of Durst as we presented it in Season 2, Episode 24 of Jury Duty. A little bit later on, you got to the dig note. All right, Mr. Durst, let's talk about what's been commonly referred to as the dig note. You know what that is, correct? Yeah. You wrote the items on the left side other than the circle around dig. Is that correct? That's your handwriting. Correct. It says town dump, bridge, dig, boat, other, shovel, check cars, slash truck, and then rent. Is that what it says? Yes. So, Mr. Durst, would you agree that just looking at it, this looks like a list of how you would get rid of a body. That's what it looks like to you. It does not look like that to me at all. If somebody read that, they would see it says town dump, which is my reference that I was going to tell the high school kids who took care of the house to take our rotting sailboats to the town dump. Bridge is an abbreviation of Bridgehampton, where Kathy and I intended to rent a house for the month of July of 1982. DIG is for digital. I had brought the MS-DOS Microsoft Control book with the computer which I was planning to work on. Boat is the sailboat that needed to go to the town dump. I don't know what I meant by other. Shovel was the snow shovels and I had asked the high school kids who were going to get rid of the sailboat at the dump to buy two snow shovels 
cars had been stolen. Check cars, stash truck, rent. Or that the kids are supposed to rent a pickup truck to put the boat in. If you go through the list, and then when we needed to buy shovels, but if you look at what it said about shovels, it was clear it had nothing with buying a shovel. It was like or shovel, if I remember. And then you had the crap with the boat. It was absurd. So I started with, obviously, I don't know he's going to say this. Okay, who's Barry Wiener? Let Bob work his way. He's a high school kid. So we'd already done our homework. I could have had Joe Becerra come out and testify. There's no Barry Wiener that he could locate who'd ever gone to high school in South Salem. He'd never heard of a Barry Wiener in this small town. But then I thought, you know, I'm going to, Bob's making it up. I'm going to start calling him Barry Weiner. I'm going to get Bob to start calling him Barry Weiner. Then after he's done it a few times, I'm going to zing him with it. The sailboat was being taken uh, to the dump by uh, the Weiner kid. Is that correct? I asked Barry Weiner to take the sailboat to the dump. Why was the sailboat being taken to the dump? Because the sailboat was rotting. But isn't that the same sailboat that you ended up selling to Bill Mayer? No, I, I had bought two sailboats. First one was rotting away, and I wanted to take it to the dump. The second one was in pretty good shape when I sold the South Salem house. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that there's never been discussion about anything more than one sailboat and you just realized right now that you made a boo-boo and tried to cover it up by now bringing up a second boat that doesn't exist? Isn't that what just happened? Yeah, the comment. Overruled. Everything you just said is untrue. How well did you know Barry Weiner? He was the kid who mowed the lawn. You said you've known Barry for five years, correct? About, yes. Yeah, you couldn't remember his name, though. You first called him Weiner, and for the last hour, I've been calling him Barry Weiner, and you've been calling him Barry Weiner. You forgot the name you gave him, didn't you? Barry Weiner, Barry Weiner. That's not the same to you. So, Mr. Durst, are you telling me that you think the name Weiner and the name Weiner are the same name? Yes. Mr. Durst, which is it? Was his name Barry Weiner or was it Barry Weiner? You don't seem to be able to make up your mind. I think I probably called him Barry Weiner sometimes and Barry Weiner other times. And mostly I just called him Barry. Was his dad's name, was it Oscar Meyer? That's where... I might have said something like, you know, was his dad Oscar Meyer? Something like that, if I remember, because it was right. absurd. And he also but. forgot that he'd sold the boat to Bill Mayer. Yes. He forgot he sold the boat to Bill Mayer. He came up with this bullshit about they're going to move to Bridgeport. Kathy is starting residency in the city. I mean, it's again, what's the best way to deal with Bob? Ask him a question and let him answer it. And he will just dig himself deeper every time. Not most times, every time. Let me ask you, do you think they would have been better off if they never called Loftus and they never called Bob? Put on nothing. Yeah, it's actually a good segue into 
the next area of testimony on day four, which is that you got him to agree that he believed that Susan Berman was telling people that she provided him with an alibi. That was great. And then he even mentioned two of them. Julie Baumgold, who never admitted that. I don't know if it's true or not. I decided not to call her. And Nick Chabin. And Nick Chabin, Susan never told him that. If Susan had told him that, he, Nick would have certainly testified to it. Let's face it. I don't believe for a second that Bob was aware that Susan was telling people this. Because if so, he would have killed her. So that was a lie. Now, they have to, why did Bob come up with that lie? Because like most of Bob's lies, in the minute he was saying it, he might have had a reason. You have to go back and tell me, what are the few questions that are right before Bob volunteers that? I don't remember. But I'm very confident that if we looked at it, in essence, he gave that answer because he thought it helped him solve a short-term issue in the cross. Typical Bob. I'll show Lewin. I'm going to answer the question this way. With no understanding, usually it didn't actually solve the short-term issue. But even if it did, it just made for bigger issues that he had even less answers for. You're absolutely right. Here's your question. You've heard testimony, you would agree, from numerous witnesses who have related that Susan Berman, in essence, told them that she helped you cover up Kathy's desk by providing you with a false alibi. Is that correct? Correct. Is it your position, as you sit here, that Susan never told those people that or that she told those people that and they're lying about it? Susan told people that she had provided an alibi for me and she told at least one person that the way she had provided the alibi was by calling Albert Einstein Medical Center. So listen to my question, maybe you stand it, but I'm not sure. There are a couple of different possibilities, Mr. Durst. Your position could be that, you know what, those witnesses who are saying Susan said that to them are either mistaken or they're lying, or they are neither mistaken or lying. Susan told them that, and she was lying. Which is it? Susan told them that, and she was lying. You gave him three alternatives, and he picked the one right. he wanted him to. <laughs> no, I gave him three alternatives. One of those alternatives was not Susan was lying, and I knew that she had been telling people that before. That wasn't even a possibility for me. So in other words, three possibilities were the witnesses are lying, the witnesses are mistaken, or Susan was lying. It never occurred to me that he would say Susan was lying, and in fact, I was aware of that lie because I knew she'd been telling people that for years. <laughs> yeah. it was, there was a fourth possibility. <laughs> yeah, but no, but, but, but it wasn't a logical fourth possibility because there's no way that he would ever say that because it's incredibly incriminating. So what I was trying to do there which I knew, and I did it with Loftus, was I wanted to make Bob choose what the defense was, right? He's either going to have to say the witnesses are lying, which if he does that, I'm going to be able to argue, here's why they're not lying. And by the way, Loftus can't help you at all with that. She finally admitted that as well, if you remember. took a long time, but she did. The witnesses are mistaken, if Bob says that, that's his best answer because at least it supports what Loftus says. Now, the problem with it is even though it would support what Loftus says, the idea that eight witnesses, many of them don't know each other, several of whom made statements before it was ever public, 
The problem with the mistaken is, although it works with the other evidence that they're presenting, it's really inconsistent with reality. But I wanted to make sure that he was going to end up having to pick one or Susan was lying. I thought there was a good chance that he was going to say Susan was lying because that was always the smarter explanation. Now, it would have discounted Loftus, but that was fine. Loftus was destroyed anyway. So he not only picks Susan was lying, this is typical box. Not only am I gonna, am I gonna prove that Susan was lying, I'm gonna tell you how I know Susan was lying. Not thinking, wait a minute, that's gonna give you, A, a huge motive to kill her. There's a big difference between Bob saying, listen, I believe Susan was lying because this never happened, and I found out about this well after her death when everybody else did, versus I believe Susan was lying, and I found out about it while she was still alive. Now he's give her a motive, give him a motive to kill her. But remember, he has to explain you're giving a ton of money to somebody who's falsely accusing you of killing your wife. So Bob Durst, the gift that keeps on giving, that was a gift that I could not even have. You know, kind of like you're 16 years old and you really are hoping that your parents are going to get you a new car for your for your 16th birthday. You know it's. Very unlikely to happen. You really want that new car. God, if I could just get that new Toyota Corolla, probably not going to happen. And then you open up the garage, and there's a brand-new Porsche 911 Cabriolet, okay? That wasn't even a possibility that it would happen. It's not like, oh, this option came through. It wasn't even in in the realm of, of what could ever happen. Never thought Bob would get up and say, oh, yeah, Susan was lying, and I know about it because I knew about those lies for years before – she died. And why do you think he did it? Well, he did it because, typical Bob fashion, he has decided that it's going to be to his advantage now to take option three, Susan is lying, and the witnesses aren't. And at that stage of the proceedings, that's the smart way to go, right? It would have been the smart way to go the whole time. But the witnesses have already testified, right? They have not been impeached. They're very solid, right? Number two, Loftus has come in, and she's been a disaster. So at this point in time, you need to go with, okay, the witnesses weren't lying. It's inconsistent with what my lawyer said. Susan was lying. So that's what he did. But in typical Bob fashion, he has to go five steps too far and two lies too far. I can tell you, he said, my memories, he said that Julie Baumgold, as soon as he said Nick Chavin, I mean, that's not true. And by the way, you know it's not true because if Bob would have heard that before for five years, Susan would have been dead. Remember, now we go full circle. Why did Bob kill Susan? He killed Susan because he realized that the cops were about to talk to Susan and that she was going to tell him what she knew. And he accurately assessed that if they talk to Susan, whether she wants to or not, she will spill the beans. She would have, as Steve Silverman said. She would have, she, she would have wanted to. Couldn't help herself. Bob knew it. That's why Silverman said a very cogent point of, you know, Susan's not the person you want to tell a secret to. Not because she has any desire to get Bob in trouble. She just has a big mouth. She can't help herself. So if Bob had known this five years ago, Susan would have been dead already. Also, there's no way that if Susan had told Nick that, Nick would have testified to it because it would have buttressed his testimony. So, again, I knew it was a lie as soon as it came out of his mouth. I knew it was an extremely ineffective lie. And, you know, we killed him with it. Bottom line was, it's one of those lies that Bob tells that doesn't help him. A key point that the defense never figured out, that I told you I was always worried about, was 
if they would have said, hey, listen, look at some of the lies Bob tells. These are lies that are demonstrably untrue, and they don't help him. They hurt him. So it's not just that Bob lies to protect himself. Bob just lies. You can't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. That should have been where they went. But again, you have to know the case. The next sort of jaw-dropping moment, Durst denied that he ever told Emily that he was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan's murder, but he admits that, in fact, he was. And so basically his position is that Emily made it up, but she happened to be right. Right, and this is what's funny. And the reason that he's saying that, by the way, that's a lie. He did tell Emily. But I will tell you what happened. Emily fucked up and got the hotel wrong. And there was a point where Bob is going, Beverly Hilton... No, and what it should have been was... She was saying, Emily was saying, the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel, and it it should have have been been the Beverly Hills Hotel. Correct. Now, what Bob doesn't understand is, is that in the way that he was responding, focusing on the name of the hotel, it was very obvious that, oh, Emily got the hotel wrong, but not the other part. So that's another thing where Bob just is a step slow and a step behind. And listen, I mean... We are professionals, right? Bob is. We had very skilled lawyers on our side of the table, and we had done an incredible amount of homework. So how is Bob going to stand up there and kind of bullshit his way through when A, he's lying, and B, the person questioning him has a lot better command of not only the real facts, but every false statement he's ever given, most of which are on clips. It's an untenable position. You're never going to win. And I knew that we had him in 2015 when I filed the case. You know, it turned out, and there was some disagreement in my office. There were some lawyers, some senior people, that did not want me to interview to go to New Orleans and interview Bob. Leave it to the police. And my assistant DA, maybe his chief deputy, Joey Esposito, backed me on it, which was a really important decision because the interview with me made all of his allegations about Jarecki worthless. We ended up getting the incredible statements of, you know, if I had killed them, I would lie about it. We ended up getting him basically confessing that he knew where Kathy's body was and what happened to Susan. We got him reiterating again to me that the killer wrote the cadaver note, or in the story to me, there were two people potentially, but they were both part of the killing. So I really think that the interview in New Orleans was a very underrated piece of evidence in the case because it not only was very damning on its own, but it's a little bit like Emily Altman. It really was the rock rolling downhill that made Bob have to make in the defense a lot of other decisions. I absolutely agree. It was very important, both in the material that was in there and in how it boxed Bob into certain stories, certain positions on it. And in fact, it was interesting when you asked him whether the person who wrote the cadaver note was responsible for Susan's murder. What was interesting was he almost seemed to be suggesting in saying that he may not have been the person that shot Susan, but whoever wrote the note was complicit in Susan's murder. He almost seemed to be buying into the all good things scenario where Morris Black actually killed Susan and Bob was sitting in a car outside the house. 
you know? Yeah, or he's just sitting there going, you know what, it's a bad statement, so I can't take it back completely. I'll kind of modify it. Yeah, I don't know. That's one of those things where it's so tactically and strategically bad that it's impossible to figure out why he said it because it was stupid. So you would have to ask him, you know, at this point in time. That's That's not not quite possible. But I agree with your larger point for sure that the New Orleans interview was critical both in the evidence that was in there and in locking him into certain positions. So, you know, Bob says during Cross that he believed that he got to Susan's house before the killer had left. And he sort of intimated that on direct when he said that the note that was on the door was suddenly gone. Yes. How did you respond when Bob said that he thought that the killer was still in the house? Well, I knew the forensics and Bob didn't. So I knew that Susan, by the time the coroner got there, she had already gone through rigor and rigor had already passed. So I knew that that put her time of death hours before he got there. I also knew that his problem was that if she's getting there and he's saying that she isn't stiff and he's saying that she's cold, then that has to be that she has been dead a long period of time. Her body temperature has dropped and the rigor has already dissipated. So I knew that Bob's telling of it before he even mentioned the cold breath did not work. And so... You know, that's one of those things where when I was crossing him, there were 25 ways where Bob could fuck up. And I didn't know which of the 25 ways they were going to be, but there wasn't any way that he could escape. So I didn't know what he was going to say. Did I think he was going to stumble? And if you remember, I'm asking him, he talks about her cold breath. Yeah, here's exactly what Bob's testimony was. I believe the killer was either still in the house or in the yard when I arrived. Mr. Durst, haven't you testified that Susan's body was cold? I did not testify that Susan's body was cold. Do you have have it ready to go or not? I put my hand over her face. I might have left that out to see if she was breathing. See if I could feel breath, and it felt cold. Well, what do you have to say about that? Her breath felt, her face felt cold. Her, she's dead. What do you mean her breath felt cold? Was she breathing on you when you got there? No, she was not breathing. So how can her breath be cold when she's dead? She's a stiff. It was, I put my hand on her face, and it was cold. Yeah, so so basically, that was a situation where I know there's, you know, 25 doors, and all of them are good for me. I don't know what door Bob's going to choose, but as soon as he chooses that door, I just follow him in there, because it's a disaster for him. So now he's got to explain, obviously she can't be breathing on him, right? So how is she cold? Well, her face is cold. By the way, if her face is cold and given the blood and you touch your face, there's no fingerprints on the phones that he used, etc. Where is the blood that he almost certainly would have transferred? You know, so I mean, all of these things just, you start looking at them and, and none of them work. So again, this is why 
it's so important with a lying witness to give them slack. And it is by pet peeve, and even, listen, Judge Wyndham's a phenomenal judge. If you remember, Judge Wyndham was lecturing me at one point in the case saying, Mr. Lewin, you can ask leading questions. Do you remember that, Kerry? Yep, I do. And I had to tell him, I don't want to ask leading questions. I'm not asking leading questions because I don't know I can ask them or because I can't think of them. Tactically, it's not the good way to go. So, you know, Bob kept giving and giving and giving. This is why, you know, every time people would say, why is this cross-examination continuing to, to go on? We got not good stuff, Kerry. We got bombshells every single day. There wasn't one day across or recross where we didn't get a bombshell. Look it up. Every day. Usually multiple bombshells. And I don't mean that's not to mention all the good stuff we got. I mean, we got bombshells every day. For days after people were saying, oh, you know, he needs to stop, we were getting bombshells. Yeah, there was a moment where Durst, both in a letter he wrote to the judge and later during his testimony, he referenced Judge Whitman rather than Wyndham. And you brought it up, I imagine, just to call attention to the fact that the guy's not even paying close enough attention or caring enough to know the name of the judge in the case. Yeah, so he did it on the letter that he wrote, remember, with the golf uh, pencil. Pencil, yep. Yeah. And then he did it again in front of the jury in the question. Now, there were people who said, well, you know, you're allowing Bob, you're pointing out that Bob doesn't even know where he is. You know, Bob is so confused. And my position was, Bob's not fucking confused. To Bob, the judge is a non-entity. I don't need to know his name. What does it matter? You've been in front of the guy for six, seven years. The fact that Bob doesn't know his name is not because Bob has any disease, et cetera, defect. Bob doesn't know his name because Bob doesn't give a shit. And that goes along with who Bob is. So I wanted to point that out because that makes my point of this is who this guy is. I mean, what criminal defendant would ever misspeak a judge's name, especially one they've been in front of for years, and then do it twice. I mean, it would never happen, right? I mean, they'd be horrified. Oh, my God, I've done this. What's the judge going to do? Bob doesn't care. I'm sure he views the judge and the rest of us. We're the help. I don't need to pronounce the help's name, right? That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I move on in our deep dive to day five of his cross-examination of the defendant, Robert Durst. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. 
Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.